So uh, welcome back to week two of our um, series on the foundations of mindfulness. What I uh, particularly uh, like about the topic, and for those of you who read the sutta, Satipatthana Sutta, you get a feeling that um, although it's in rather uh, arcane speech, there is still a sense of the continuity of some method or practice that has uh, gone on for 2,500 years and is rather flourishing today as opposed to some of the uh, more recent historical periods. And, uh, but I think it's very important to get a sense of how, it, how we're tied uh, in lineage, in our tradition, to where uh, this comes from, from the Buddha. And although we, uh, we talk about it a little differently, the content of the problems seem to be uh, different in some ways. Still, the basis on which all of this rests, the truth on, all, on which it all rests, is as true today as it has ever been, regardless of what problems arise. And I just, I feel that in some ways, we have to, from time to time, look backward and see that the situations that we're under and personally and uh, as a society have their root problems uh, as long as uh, the history of man and womankind. So here we are, 2,500 years later, trying to find our breath when we sit, trying to make contact, noticing what it is that's happening to us moment after moment. And to, to feel the, the history of this practice, really. I mean, we really fall, we are the contemporary expression of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have done this before us. Somehow that gives me a lot of confidence and a lot of faith. There's a story in the Buddhist time that I particularly like because um, in our Vipassana tradition, there are people who are traditionalists and people who are not traditionalists. And sometimes uh, teachers can point fingers at each other and say, well, you know, you're, you're getting away from the tradition too much. Or non-traditionalists say, well, you're too stuck in the tradition. And uh, the story about, of the Buddha that I particularly like is uh, at one point there was a monk uh, of his that had... Uh, practiced very deeply and then um, left the Sangha and gone to back to his native area in, uh, in India. And he started speaking uh, in the local language of the time 
and talking and speaking Dharma in ways that were non-traditional. And some of the monks around the Buddha wanted the Buddha to reprimand uh, this former monk and bring him back into the fold. And the Buddha said, uh, why, why, why would I want to do that? He says, he's, he's talking, he's saying the truth. He's just not using the same words that I used. And it should be available for all times and all people, with all people and all languages. And that can't happen unless we say it in a way that's meaningful to whomever we're talking. So, traditional or untraditional, it's, it's what our heart hears and what we particularly are drawn to, towards. So tonight, I want to talk about the last time we talked about mindfulness of the body, being aware of ourselves in a body, and how we can develop some rest and repose within this body as our consciousness just can settle back and just allow the fact that this body itself is a mechanism for our own awakening and all the difficulties and problems that the body generates in terms of pain and in terms of the kinds of psychological patterns we have in relationship to our body, our vanity, or whatever, can reveal itself in the field of our mindfulness. Remembering that mindfulness means, the definition of mindfulness is noticing what is happening to us. And as long as we are Anchored, noticing what we are, what is happening to us in the body. We are being mindful of the body. So, tonight, uh, the foundation of mindfulness that we want to explore is the foundation that rests upon feelings. And in Buddhist tradition, feelings are not emotions but are intimations of whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And at one point, in a a quote that I like about, like to quote of the Buddha, he said, um, at one point in his practice, after a number of years, I'm sure, being an ascetic and all the other different things he did, He said, I realized at some point that all I was seeking was pleasant feelings. That's what was driving my whole life. And we can look at this in terms of of our spiritual practice as well. That there is a great maturation that occurs uh, from, uh, from the beginning of our spiritual endeavors, which usually revolve around pleasant feelings. We want a spiritual practice that makes me feel at peace or, or, or brings me into the spirit of goodness, of beauty, of acts of kindness, acts of generosity, feelings of well-being. It just want to rest in that, those refined qualities of mind that are so precious and so subtle. And so uh, we 
often seek out spiritual endeavors which give us that. Or the sense of community around having come upon something like some something new that's just below the surface of what is reasonably acceptable. Like some of the work with uh, uh, massage or touch, therapeutic touch or crystals or chakra work, you know, that make me feel as if I'm involved with something that is not typical and normal and yet that the feeling of being uh, in, in with a community that all are look, that are looking at something that is exciting and new—that's pleasant feeling. Pleasant feeling. So you have to be very. I think one of the crucial maturations that happened to us, uh, and it's one of the reasons that uh, Buddhist traditions don't uh, speak to a great number of people, is that. That's what most people want, is pleasant feelings. They don't want to understand themselves. They don't want clarity, which is very different than pleasant feelings. They would rather just keep pursuing more and more subtle pleasures. Well, that's fine. But there certainly is a limit to what degree of freedom pleasantness will take us and pleasantness is really we I mean in order to be able to perceive a pleasant feeling we have to be out of wanting the pleasant feeling we have to be in a different dimension than the pleasantness itself in order to perceive whether something is pleasant we can't base ourselves in that pleasantness we have to be the awareness of it means that we're not indulgent in it. We're not wallowing in it. Which means that we're no longer pursuing the pleasant, but being aware and noticing the pleasant. And so the whole uh, series of conditioned responses ends in the noticing of the pleasant. And uh, really the heart of the Buddhist teaching uh, is in a series of of, uh, talks that he once gave on dependent origination based on contact. When we make a contact with something, and this is everything, there arises the sense of whether that contact is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I'm feeling this thing, it's cold, it's not very pleasant. And then based upon the fact that something is pleasant comes a whole series of steps to either want to hold on to it and maintain that pleasantness, avoid it and stay away from it if it's unpleasant, or not to notice and really make contact with it if it's neutral. And so noticing the point at which something is pleasant or unpleasant has enormous implications for what happens thereafter. And so mindfulness of pleasant feelings or unpleasant feelings or neutral feelings can eliminate a whole 
systematic way of our a whole system uh, that is formed around our conditioning. <clears throat> now, uh, and this we somehow tie to the homework uh, for today. Uh, there's a um, the Buddhist. Uh, tradition also talks about styles of ignorance in which people um, pursue one or the other of those feelings at the expense of others, at the expense of uh, the rest. So they emphasize one of those feelings over and above the other two. So, for instance, one style of ignorance is the greedy individual. The person who is attracted, so attracted to the pleasant that he builds his whole life around pursuing only pleasant feelings. And think for a moment, and you can either acknowledge that in yourself, because all of these different qualities I think you'll find in yourself, but predominantly somebody who does that would be somebody who likes the very refined life and at the expense of any sense of discomfort is always looking, so there's a kind of restlessness in that person, looking for more and more refined uh, uh, pleasantness in the world. And then another style of ignorance is the aversive type. The, one, the person that avoids the unpleasant. And that's the person that usually has a lot of their life based in fear or overprotection, trying to protect their life or their children's lives or their family's lives from any sense of harm or aversion and would be um, someone who uh, was very self-protected from any kind of feedback or self-knowledge, etc. So we all know people like that. And then the reason I save this to last is because it... Uh, it's my particular <laughs> one. That is the, um, the ignorant type. The type that so doesn't make sufficient contact, which kind of pulls back in him or herself and isn't really available full-heartedly because something's neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's sort of spaced out or just not uh, really intimate with. And it's somebody who doesn't take the whole situation in. And therefore, there's a sort of insensitivity or bluntness that can come from this person because they aren't really aware of the appropriate speech, the appropriate way to say things, because they aren't taking the whole situation in. They aren't listening acutely to what needs to be said, the usefulness of the, of the wise speech, but just will say what seems to be true and appropriate given their limitation of contact. See? You see how that is? The, an aversive person would pull back and run away. The, a greedy type would want to wallow in. And a neutral person just isn't fully um, embracing. Now, uh, so according to the Buddhist lore, each one of us is predominantly in one of those three areas. 
Although, as I mentioned before, we can all find part of ourselves in each one. So for the homework, I would like you to try to understand which one you are and watch the patterns that come out of that in the course of the week. <clears throat> Greedy, aversive, or neutral, ignorant. But the fact is that um, going back to feelings, the pleasant and unpleasant, feelings change, don't they? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, they change. And how we condition, I mean, I, masochism is really taking pain and making it almost pleasurable. And how these feelings arise is through our conditioned past. But there are ways in which each of the feelings can turn uh, and become something different over time and change. So that pain for some people is actually a form of pleasure. And if you have too much pleasure, like too much ice cream, it can turn into unpleasantness or too much of anything. So it's interesting to know that these feelings, although they arise when contact, are also conditioned qualities in, in themselves. And some people, especially spiritual people, feel that their intuition, being intuitive, somehow means that they can rely on their feelings, whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, and take stock, rest on that as being somehow more true than whether their thoughts are, than what they're thinking about that person or situation. And they say, well, you know, I have this intuitive sense that this isn't the right place for me to be. And what they mean is that it's, there's something unpleasant going on there, and they take that as being more fact, and then you really have a real intuitive sense about you. For what? How is, how is there any reliability in feelings? How does that make a more of a statement of truth than any other quality of, of the mind? And that maybe, maybe, intuition is something beyond even that. Maybe intuition is based in clarity and not in feelings. But I see that a lot people thinking that they're some they want to be I mean it's one of the <laughs> one of the things that I want to be intu you know intuitive so but what it really means is that we're just moving with a feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness so to be aware of that and to be aware of how these feelings can become elaborations and become whole scenarios in themselves when we meet somebody who we don't have a pleasant feeling about you know all of a sudden uh, the history of all similar types of people come back at us and we just get lost in this whole uh, elaboration of what the kind of person that is and I mean like on an interview we I do a lot of interviews for staff and I miss the mark about 50% of the time I could have you, I'm as, I think if I threw a dart, <laughs> I would be as accurate as I am in interviews. For a long time, I thought I was intuitive. <laughs> but it was just 
I don't like this person. <laughs> and the person then would turn out to be a great staff person or whatever, shattering my sense of... <laughs> or vice versa. There would be something about the person's dress or behavior or appearance that I would like and I would go, yeah, I have an intuitive sense that this is the right person. You bring them in and they would be terrible nurses or social workers or something. So I, I'm, I don't have a... <laughs> I'm not very good at it. Some people have a better sense because they see the person in clarity, clearly, and they notice little behaviors that indicate uh, certain problems they might be having or whatever, or they answer questions in a certain way. But uh, what I have to be careful of is how I get lost in the feeling and it just goes out. It's like ripples on a pond. It, you know, just, just out. And, and you've dismissed the person, written them off, based upon some feeling. And who knows where that feeling comes from? I mean, unless we're very, very clear in ourselves, maybe because of wearing the wrong color socks, or their accent, or something. And really, really, it says much more about us than it does about them. Because where do those unpleasant and pleasant things come from? They don't come from them. They come from me in response to my conditioning of that particular thing. And really that's prejudice and all kinds of problems arise from, well, all problems. I love these kind of dramatic absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the it's one of the things that ignorant people do with the neutral people, you know. <laughs> they they aren't sensitive enough to really look and make qualifying <laughs> statements, so they make these kind of. <laughs> so all problems <laughs> come from from feel, st stem from the elaboration unpleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's where they come from wanting to perpetuate one or delay or postpone the other or not really tuning in. The Buddha gave a story uh, about uh, feelings. He said uh, to his monks, they were gathered by the river and there was a dog on the bank of the river that had mange. And uh, the dog... Uh, would scratch his mange and then um, he would lie down for a while in the sun and he'd get up a couple of minutes later and walk over to the shade and he'd lie down in the shade and he'd get up and he'd go in the water and he'd get out of the water and then he would he was just restless and the Buddha said uh, monks you see that dog with mange the monk said yes and he said the dog thinks it's where he's going the place that he resides that's the problem. But he carries the problem on his back. In shade, in the water, in the sun, the mange is there. Well, the mange is in us. <laughs> We're scratching and turning our backs on people, forming all kinds of opinions and prejudice when we're the ones that have the mange. 
And I think I realized at some point all I was doing was seeking pleasant feelings in my life or, un- or avoiding unpleasant. You see? You begin to realize, all right, got to own this mange. All right, let me, just, let me just own this opinion that I have of this person. That isn't some kind of intuitive insight. That's my opinion. And I'm stuck here. And it's not their problem, it's me. Because a person reflects our own disposition, not theirs. So as a culture, I think feelings is a good one for us because... As a culture, I see us being, again, as a culture, more conditioned to pleasant feelings than most cultures. Now, if if any of you have ever been to the East, they have an amazing ability to put up with extreme climate changes and conditions and everything that we wouldn't even think about doing. I went from Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, where uh, almost no one had air conditioning and it was one of the hottest cities that you ever want to be in. I mean, I can just remember just feeling, I, this, it can't get any hotter than this or everybody would die. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, right after that, six months later, I was in Houston, Texas, <laughs> where it's not quite as hot, but it's pretty close and it's the humidity is just, ah, but no one would touch it. No one would touch the outdoors. (laughs) If they had helmets that they could have put on to carry the air conditioning in, they would (laughs) have. But they would go to air conditioned cars, apartments, work. No one ever touched it. And everybody in Thailand lived in it. And it was just interesting to me. You know, and what happens then we is, first of all, you've got to see that we don't become happier. I mean, that's obvious, right? That doesn't make us happier. That, but it makes us more um, sensitive uh, to more and more refined pleasures. So we just keep seeking more and more refined pleasures or avoiding more gross discomforts. And so that then we get, because the more refined pleasures we seek, uh, we're never quite happy where we are. We just keep, it's like an endless continuum of pleasantness, you know. So, you know, it's not just having air conditioning, but it's having air conditioning at uh, 68.5 degrees. And I can't, this is not comfortable for me because it's 67 in here, you see. So now you've you got to have it just right. And it's just very interesting. And so I think our culture is on a kind of a spiral path down. And I think somewhere along the line here, and I think we've bottomed out, because what the world can offer us in terms of resources away from the unpleasant or towards the unpleasant has become limited. We can't do it now anymore. We don't have the money and we don't have the natural resources to allow us that endless spiral down. And some of us are kind of like popping back up to the surface here and actually going to the east, which is something unheard of. <laughs> Why would you want to go to that place? It's like you can't bear it. The food, the climate, everything. So I, I think for some conscious people, there is a, 
a strategy in which the pleasant or unpleasant has to be seen through, has to be embraced in a different way. And if I could just take that example of, of like seeking out more and more refined pleasures, the best food, the best wine. You know, I can't eat a Cabaret Sauvignon 1968. I've got to have a 19, you know, it's that kind of thinking. Well, it keeps us from belonging. <coughs> it keeps us from a feel, feeling belong, being a part of. You see, if, and that's what we're missing as a culture. But we don't see that it has anything to do with the other, with the refined pleasures that we seek. And we don't feel, because we're so opinionated as a culture, we keep everything cracked up and separate and distant and judgmental. And we wonder, I mean, those of you who've done retreats, you wonder why you know, you can't settle into retreat because you've got this enormous amount of judgment that's going on, not only towards yourself, but towards everybody. And it keeps you from feeling belong, a part of. Because we haven't learned the art of acceptance. We haven't learned the art of contentment with pleasant or unpleasant. We haven't learned that art. We've learned the art of the spiral down, the spiral away, the more refined. And why that keeps us from feeling like a community. So somebody comes in to the Sangha here, who's a little bit strange or something, or has a, some kind of trait that, yeah, let's get rid of him, right? Isn't that what we think? I can't wait for him to. We don't see it as a, well, when I was first on staff at Insight Meditation Center, there was a staff member that came in who I, I did everything I could to block her from becoming a staff member. Being a more senior staff, I thought I had the power to do that. And, and we were just like this the whole year. She one time took a salt shaker and dumped it on my head. <laughs> But that's true. And we were just always. And I thought, oh, if she would just leave, it would be like I could really enjoy myself here in this meditation center. <laughs> and it doesn't work like that. Life does not work like that. Think about when you sit and there's some sound coming. You sit in Asia and sound, if sound didn't come, you'd think, what's going on here? Why is it so quiet? I mean, I have some loudspeaker blaring. You know, or, well, when I got to Burma, I, in the meditation hall, right next to the meditation hall, they were building another building. And they, they had, it, the Burmese are not quiet people. And they were jibber-jabbering Burmese and cranking out the cement. And it was just like a racket. And I kept going, God, no, everybody else was sitting like a Buddha. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> It's not the Western way. You have to be quiet. <laughs> see, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, pleasant. So that wasn't meditation. You see, I carved, that's not meditation. I've got to get out of here. That's not meditation. <laughs> so we keep carving out what's meditation and what's not meditation. We keep carving out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Meanwhile, people who don't have that option are plumped down and meditating in it all. Meditating on the difficulty, using the difficulties. Gurdjieff used to do that. He used to, he's a Rus Russian mystic. He used to throw the hardest person he could find in the community or in the 
society in the middle of his community and keep him there. There's one story uh, where he made all of his disciples give him all of his money except this really bad, difficult person. He gave that person everything because he wanted him to stay. Something like that. But see, when you start thinking of the value of understanding feeling, then, then you understand why, what this thing is all about. And there's a maturation, I think, that goes on towards thinking of spirituality as some kind of refined sense of well-being, you know, where you're... This is it, right here. What is in your minds right now, in your bodies, not having a slim body or any kind, it's right here. One other, a couple other things uh, that I think this culture uh, emphasizes is um, feeling of being in control. That's a big one, especially for uh, those of us who've had some alcoholism or something in the family. But even without, it's a pretty much of a general trait for most of us that being in control is kind of a... See, I'm at work, we're going through this hospice restructuring. And so there's all kinds of, of, of nurses who are bidding on positions and other ones who are having to leave because they're getting bumped. And it's not working out the way I wanted it to. The people, some of the people who are staying are the ones that really should move on and the other ones, and I'm completely out of control. I'm having a hell of a week or two weeks because I have no control. I mean, as a director, what do you think I'm doing in that spot? I'm there to control, right? So now I don't have any control over the one thing that I, it's awful. It's very difficult. I mean, you can giggle all you want, but it's not easy. It's very difficult to do that. And, you know, I can just see, but what I've done is taken it as a theme. And I can just see that how I want to perpetuate a sense of control, you know? You know, that's really, that has tentacles far beyond my employment. And you begin to f follow those tentacles and they have to do with being comfortable in the unpleasantness of change. That's really what being in control tries to fight against. It's the aversion of the unpleasantness of change. And you just want something solid to put your feet. So, well, good luck. Good luck finding that. And of course, uh, perfectionism, another disease of the Western mind. Yeah, we think it's so, we even say it, you know, well, I'm a perfectionist. You know, meaning what? Meaning that you're crazy. That's what it means. That's what it means. It's simply said, you're neurotic beyond belief. So is that something that people, is that something that's admirable? 
So what about uh, feelings and thoughts? Uh, this gets a little more subtle. But you know, even our thoughts have feelings associated with them. And so we can be sitting, practicing our breathing, uh, focused on our breath, and a thought comes up that is much more pleasant to involve ourselves in than, than the kind of uh, neutral feeling that our breath has. So what ha you can just see. You can see right in that moment where our path lies. <laughs> Boom. Off we go. What do you think pulls us away? It's the pleasantness of the thinking process. It's the pleasantness of being, see, the, because thought takes us away. You know, it's like respite. You know, I can just, I'll just space out here. You see? So that's kind of, you know, it's like, okay, especially for the ones who are the ignorant wallows, the, the uh, neutral people like myself. I'll stay in thought. <laughs> Whoa. So you just, you know, you just play, just let yourself float in it and it's kind of, you know, just sort of thinking about your vacation. Or, because thought contains the feeling of the thing itself. Think if I think about Hawaii, you know, there's, there's I am, Hawaii, sun, you know, coast. Oh, I can feel, oh yeah. See, it has that feeling. Except it's not satisfying. Well, because it's not the thing. It's just the thought of the thing. So ultimately, I mean, it's, you know, it's like sexual thoughts. Well, that's, it's really not very satisfying. So you've gotta, we've got to begin to mature beyond just wanting to involve ourselves in thinking. The pleasantness of thinking. And for people who are in professions in which there's an awful lot of thought, I mean, you have quite likely have chosen that profession because of the pleasantness that you get out of thinking. So we have to be very watchful of just finding ourselves, you know, falling into this kind of uh, mindless thinking for the pure pleasantness of it. Our relationship with the things, our relationship with things is really the feelings we have for the things rather than the things itself. What we call a relationship is usually is the relationship with the feeling of that thing. Rather than for the thing itself. And what meditation does, and what mindfulness does, is it allows us to go on the other side of that, to touch the thing itself. To have intimacy rather than relationship. Relationship there are two. In intimacy there is just equanimity. Where is there contentment in feeling? Where can I rest in pleasantness? I try, but it changes. Or I seek more and more refined pleasure. 
Where is there a sense of, I can just stay here, this is it. Okay, everything, I've got it all gone, you know, got my bath water at 72 degrees, everything. Except the bath water then starts getting colder. Where is there contentment? See, if it doesn't, if there isn't, if contentment isn't infinite, then it's of time. I want infinite. Where is there infinite contentment? Where is there a presence that can steady itself beyond the conditioned quality of things? What is that? Where is there something beyond that? And let me rest there. If we are just seeking pleasant feelings, we'll never find that. Life will just be that. And we'll fool ourselves from now until we die, thinking that we're on some spiritual path. Look at the books. The books that have been written along those lines and the workshops and the people who come out and really what they're doing is going down more and more. Where is there something beyond that for God's sake? Where can this practice lead but to something beyond that? It has to. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.